The Hamlet Podcast, episode 39. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. We stopped last time, just as Macbeth appeared to be regaining control. The ghost has disappeared and the frazzled king is trying to appear calm after his outburst. He's even managed to raise a toast to Banquo, making a show of missing him and wishing he were there. Such cheek in a drama seldom goes unpunished, and so now, right after the lords have all raised their glasses, Banquo's ghost reappears, again only visible to Macbeth. All of Macbeth's cool evaporates, and he explodes again. Avaunt, and quit my sight, let the earth hide thee. Thy bones are marrowless, thy blood is cold, thou hast no speculation in those eyes which thou dost glare with. Avaunt is a great word for telling someone to be gone, and, in case you didn't get that, Macbeth follows it up by telling the ghost to quit his sight. Sight and seeing are important here, not least since Shakespeare has to reinforce the effect, somehow, that the only person seeing this ghost is Macbeth himself. He rails at Banquo that the earth should hide him. He is dead and should be buried. But the murderers left him in a ditch, so that hasn't happened. Macbeth insists that his bones are marrowless, his blood is cold, all life is gone from him, and so Banquo's body should not be standing in front of him. Likewise, there is no sight or speculation in Banquo's eyes. He is dead, and so there's no way that his eyes can be seeing Macbeth, even if they do appear now to be glaring at him. Now Lady Macbeth tries to cover, tries to explain away this shocking outburst. Macbeth is seeing dead people and shouting at them, so of course she has to try to smooth things over. She says, Think of this, good peers, but as a thing of custom, tis no other, only it spoils the pleasure of the time. She completes Macbeth's last line of verse, picking up the rhythm of the scene even as Macbeth continues to gape at this empty space. She tells the assembled good peers to think of this behaviour as a thing of custom. God love her, trying to explain this as ordinary behaviour from Macbeth. It's nothing more than that. Tis no other, she says. It's all fine. It's perfectly ordinary. Although it does slightly spoil the pleasure of the time. It's not ideal for him to have one of these customary episodes during their grand feast, but that aside, there's nothing to worry about. Is anyone convinced? Even if they are, Macbeth now continues and makes his severe trouble impossible to ignore. What man dare, I dare. Approach thou, like the rugged Russian bear, the armed rhinoceros, or the herkin tiger. Take any shape but that and my firm nerves shall never tremble. Or be alive again, and dare me to the desert with thy sword. If trembling I inhabit then, protest me the baby of a girl. Hence, horrible shadow, unreal mockery, hence. Why so? Being gone, I am a man again. Pray you, sit still. As if picking up an earlier cue from Lady Macbeth, the line about being quite unmanned in folly that we had in the previous episode, Macbeth now insists that what man dare, I dare. 
we have echoes of his line, Who dares do more is none, from Act 1, Scene 7 as well. Macbeth has a very clear sense of manhood and masculinity. He knows its limits, too. Here he lists a variety of threats that wouldn't scare him. A rugged Russian bear, for example. I kind of think that there may have been a Russian bear that was famous in the bear pits in London in the early 17th century. A few other plays from the period mention the might of the Russian bear, so it's possible that there was a famous beast in London worthy of this name. Over the centuries since, Russia has come to be associated with the bear, but this doesn't seem to have been the case when Macbeth was written. Macbeth is entirely prepared to fight such a bear, or indeed a rhinoceros, described as armed because of its horn, or even the Hercan tiger. We discussed the Hyrcanian beast back in Hamlet, episode 65. Macbeth here shortens Hyrcanian to Hercan to fit the metre, but we can assume that he's still talking about this Caspian or Hyrcanian tiger. These were notoriously brutal big cats, horrifically popular as animal adversaries to human gladiators in the ring. Again, Macbeth is making the point that he'll get in the arena with the worst possible creatures that a man can face. Admittedly, none of these are mythological or supernatural, but his point is that he'll dare anything alive. He'll face anything, anything but this ghost. Take any shape but that, he says, and his firm nerves will never tremble. Raving now, he suggests that Banquo could even be alive again and challenge him to a fight in the remotest place imaginable. Dare me to the desert with thy sword, and he'll fight bravely. If trembling I inhabit then, he says, if I appear to tremble, if I let even a tremor cross me, Banquo can dismiss him as no braver than a little girl's doll. Here, the baby of a doll is a doll rather than a baby girl. Macbeth's point is again the difference between a girl's doll and a man. But for all his protestations, he's still screaming at this ghost, which, again, only he can see, and shouts, hence, horrible shadow, unreal mockery, hence. We've had discussion of the mockery of the senses earlier, and even now, in this great distress, Macbeth is referring to it in a different way. This image, this ghost, is an unreal mockery. Now that its work is done, the ghost vanishes on command. Its exit is important. The snap from it being there to not being there is immediate only for Macbeth. But of course we can see when the ghost disappears. It becomes a very tense moment now, since everyone in the room is staring at Macbeth and his terror. So now we have this immensely awkward moment as he looks around and realises that everyone's watching. Why so, he says, now that the ghost is gone, he is a man again. Masculinity again. I saw an excellent version of this scene once where everyone was standing up from the table staring at Macbeth here, and so when he said, pray you, sit still, everyone had to take their seats, intrigued and concerned as to what might happen next. Lady M now speaks again, and I don't even know if it's an aside or not. Can she be bothered now trying to be discreet? Surely she and everyone knows that the evening is unsalvageable. She says, You have displaced the mirth, broke the good meeting, with most admired disorder. 
Macbeth has wrecked the mood, upended their pleasant evening, and brought chaos to the table. Most admired disorder sounds to us like a euphemism. She means it's genuinely amazing and terrifying what he's done. Macbeth still doesn't seem to be listening. He's now looking at everyone else, wondering how they haven't lost their minds with fear. Can such things be, and overcome us like a summer's cloud, without our special wonder? You make me strange even to the disposition that I owe, when now I think you can behold such sights, and keep the natural ruby of your cheeks when mine is blanched with fear. Macbeth is intrigued as he looks around, and sees nobody else aghast. He asks how on earth such a sight could appear and not cause such special wonder as he has just shown. Special wonder is a lovely euphemism for a man screaming at thin air and all but revealing himself to be responsible for his friend's murder. The summer's cloud is a poetic attempt to describe how his fit has been passing over him, but that he's all right again now. But now, he admits that he feels estranged from his own character and reputation as a man of bravery, as he realises that everyone else has been in this room looking at Banquo's ghost and hasn't reacted. Perhaps his disposition is no longer brave. You make me strange even to the disposition that I owe, when now I think you can behold such sights and keep the natural ruby of your cheeks when mine is blanched with fear. Here we are returning to another important image that recurs throughout the play, the difference between being red and white. White means fear and weakness. We've had talk of being appalled, literally scared into being white and drawn, and Lady Macbeth earlier on shamed to wear a heart so white. Here Macbeth knows he is ashen and pale with fright, blanched with fear, but everyone else still has the natural ruby of their cheeks. How on earth have they all managed to stay cool in the face of these horrible sights? But of course, nobody has seen anything, and it falls to Ross to ask the awkward question, What sights, my lord? Lady Macbeth attempts to stall this, since the only thing worse now would be for Macbeth to attempt to explain whatever it is that he alone has seen. So she covers again, I pray you, speak not. He grows worse and worse. Question enrages him. At once, good night. Stand not upon the order of your going, but go at once. She doesn't want any more talk of this. Speak not, she says. He's getting worse. Questions will set him off again. So at once, good night. For once and for all, good night, everyone. You're dismissed, she's saying and in stark contrast to all the fuss at the top of this scene in terms of pageantry and ranks of who sat where at the table, she has to slice through all of that and tell them not to worry but to leave all together, immediately. Stand not upon the order of your going, but go at once. The Macbeth's grasp on power and on Scotland feels very weak now as she watches these lords all scramble to clear the room. Only Lennox even turns back, and he has a little word now, speaking perhaps for all of them, as he says, Good night, and better health attend his majesty. It's good of him to try, but everyone knows that this is not a good night at all. At least Macbeth didn't actually say Banquo's name. That's a small mercy. 
Lady Macbeth doesn't trouble herself trying to speak to anyone individually. She ends the scene for all of them, saying, A kind good night to all, with her best brave keep calm and carry on face on, and all of the lords exit. Now King and Queen are left alone in the wreckage of this important feast. What is there even to be said? No surprise that we're going to leave it there and find out what, if anything, Macbeth might have to say for himself in the next episode. Thank you, as always, for your company, and I'll speak to you next time.